Well, we can't say we haven't been warned. The number one issue on people's minds is health care. Comprehensive care for women's comprehensive needs. I opposed Obamacare. Same reason many people did. There are 700,000 Ohioans who now get care who didn't have it before. On November 6th, midterm elections ushered in a major shift in the balance of power in the federal government, with Democrats taking control of the House of Representatives. Here in Ohio, however, the so-called blue wave was more muted, with a few Democrats gaining seats in the state legislature, but all statewide offices, with the exception of Senator Sherrod Brown, who was re-elected, being won by Republicans. The state house will again be dominated by Republicans, though with a slightly decreased majority, and led by our new incoming governor, Mike DeWine. This is Prognosis Ohio, Ohio's health policy and politics report. I'm Dan Skinner. On this week's episode, we take a look at how the recent election stands to shift, or to not shift, the health policy agenda here in Ohio. To get at this question, I spoke with Lauren Anthes. Lauren serves as a public policy fellow and leads Medicaid policy efforts at the Center for Community Solutions, a Cleveland-based nonpartisan think tank focused on solutions to health, as well as other social and economic issues. Lauren is also a lecturer at Ohio University's Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine on the Cleveland campus, which makes him my colleague. Lauren has significant public and private sector experience and has worked extensively with and as part of the legislative and executive branches of local, state, and federal governments. This includes serving as manager of state and local government relations for the Metro Health System in Cleveland and working for the Ohio Department of Medicaid. And now to my talk with Lauren Anthes. Well, Lauren Anthes, thanks uh, for joining us on Prognosis Ohio. Thanks for having me, Dan. So, you know, I, I reached out to you to talk in particular, you know, right after the midterm elections had taken place, you know, during the campaign leading up to the elections, we heard a lot about how healthcare was going to be on the ballot. Um, so I wonder, you know, with you know, the election now in the bag, um, from a health policy perspective, you know, what's your assessment? How do you think about the relevance of the election to where health care is going in the state? Yeah, so I think I think it depends on what you're looking at. Um, you know, there's in my mind, it if you're thinking about it on a larger level, say on um, what happened federally, the political outcome is going to be very different. Um, so, you know, the Democrats took over the House, Republicans still have the Senate, and obviously the Trump administration is still in place. So you probably won't see that many bills. You won't see um, an effort to repeal the ACA. Um, you'll likely see more sort of administrative or regulatory or sub-regulatory type of stuff. Um, things that are a little bit more difficult to understand, that are a little bit wonkier, um, but still that fundamentally might change the way the ACA is implemented or the way that some of the parts of the ACA, whether that's expansion or uh, the insurance marketplace are operated. And so the outcomes might be either different state to state or um, it'll sort of be this running uh, sort of effort on a federal level that really will come out of um, uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. On the state level, it's it's probably a little bit different insofar as it's single party control and there's a new governor. So I, I imagine that the activity is going to ramp up and you're going to see more policy um, activity kind of taking place, if only because with with, you know, a, a new governor, they're going to want to like sort of leave their mark on the program. Right. Yeah. Well, let's let's turn to the new governor. So Mike DeWine, the attorney general, is going to be the new governor for Ohio. Um, you know, and obviously uh, I, I think you have to approach thinking about the Ohio governor um, while also considering what John Kasich has meant to the state. Obviously, um, 
Kasich has uh, turned on his own party on the Medicaid issue. Uh, and, you know, uh, a lot of Democrats have given him a lot of credit for that, even though they might not love him <laughs> on balance. Um, but, you know, there, there's no nobody quite like John Kasich. How, how do you think about Mike DeWine uh, when you put him in the context of what John Kasich has been um, in the healthcare space for the last two terms? Sure. Well, first of all, uh, Governor Kasich is really popular generally, maybe not so in uh, certain circles within, say, Ohio's Republican Party. But, um, you know, for the most part, Ohioans like him uh, nationally. He's trying to raise his profile and, and Medicaid expansion is one of those things that he's put forward as like, you know, uh, sort of this um, uh, centrist uh, lamppost. And, uh, you know, Mike DeWine did commit to the idea of expansion. And I think like John Kasich, where you're going to see the, the sort of like differences are in the details around how the program is implemented. So, you know, I think the DeWine folks are going to support work requirements. They're going to uh, look at um, ways to fundamentally change how uh, folks in the expansion um, have to or are able to become eligible for the program. Um, so, you know, well, Governor Kasich was also kind of putting us there yeah. a little bit already. right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, heading in that direction. Totally, totally. He was he was already sort of down that path. Um, the other thing is, too, just from a practical standpoint, Medicaid expansion is very valuable financially to the state and the state's budget. So, you know, even though um, you could sort of view Medicaid expansion as like a difficult thing for uh, Governor Kasich to accomplish politically, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, a lot of the the sort of uh, fighting back was more political posturing than it was like really ending it. Right. I mean, it's it's sort of difficult to take things away. And, and that's definitely true. But there's also a lot of money that's flowing to the state that wouldn't have otherwise for a very important industry in the state of Ohio. One of the ways I've been thinking about it, and I wonder what you think of this, is uh, Governor Kasich, was willing to veto and to use his veto power in ways, you know, sometimes even against the largely Republican legislature. Uh, most people are assuming that uh, a Governor DeWine will be a little bit more in lockstep with the legislature than John Kasich was. I mean, is that your sense too? Um, yeah, it, it, right now anyway. I mean, let's not forget, um, you know, it's been eight years of uh, a Kasich administration. And, uh, you know, it's only recently that the General Assembly had veto override ability, given the numbers of Republicans. And that's going to change now after the midterms with House Democrats picking up a couple of seats. But, uh, you know, I, th I think <laughs> leave leave enough uh, time for anybody to work together and maybe the nature of that working relationship changes. Um, and also you have things to consider like, well, what are the future speaker races going to look like? And what are the future Senate races going to look like? And what does reapportionment do to all of this? So I would say that that's true, especially right now, because DeWine is sort of entering into his first term that you wouldn't want to sort of be hardcore <laughs> right up front from a political standpoint. Um, but things can change. Um, I will say this, uh, at Impact Ohio, which is like, you know, this conference that takes place immediately after the election, one of the first public appearances by DeWine and, and Husted, one of the things he said was, you know, we're going to be a very open administration, which is different than what Governor Kasich had said at that same conference when he first got to office, which was, you know, either you're on the bus or, you know, the bus is going to run you over. Basically, um, <laughs> you know, he had this sort of like positioning of like, hey, listen, I'm here to make change. I'm here to like, have a strong administration. And, and for the most part, that, that that was true. And I think that grew a little worrisome on some folks. 
but you know, it took a while before they got to the point of veto overriding. So I think anything can change. Anything's possible, but at least in the near term future, I think they're going to play pretty nice. It sounds a little bit like the old political axiom, you know, that you, uh, you, you, you campaign in poetry and you govern in prose, you know, <laughs> when you actually have to sit down to figuring out the compromises that policy requires, um, some of the sound bites aren't so effective. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, it comes down to like, what do you want versus what I want? And I don't think, um, even if that's in the context of a single party, you know, parties aren't monoliths, right? And even in Ohio's house speaker race right now, that's very true. I mean, most of the actual tangible political power of the House Democrats is more closely tied to who becomes the House Republican speaker and how that affects sort of some of these major decisions around things like Medicaid expansion than it does their actual legislative power. So I think, you know, with time, things can change with, uh, you know, depending on the context, economically, policy wise, you know, your your friends are your friends until they're not. Right. <laughs> well, you know, I, I wonder, you know, in thinking of you particularly as a, as a Medicaid expert, um, you know, I know you were uh, involved with um, and I attended the uh, I don't know if you call the celebration, but the 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 anniversary, the four the four year look back on Medicaid and looking at the data. You know, it was really interesting listening to the state budget director and listening to the the Medicaid director and the governor himself, who was interviewing patients and talking to people who had benefited from the Medicaid expansion. You know, I felt like that that moment was fairly conclusive that they were all in on the tangible effects of what this had done, and not just as kind of a part of a progressive sort of thing, but really, you know, some of the traditional areas that conservatives are really, um, fiscal conservatives are really um, concerned about. So I, I wonder if you can, what, what's your assessment? I mean, do you, you kind of pointed it to it before, but do you think we have policy entrenchment? Do you think Medicaid is is really, you know, a, a third rail or is it just, it's a third rail, but then you have work requirements and other different kinds of reforms that are going to happen around it? Um, probably more of the latter. Um, you know, I think, I think first of all, like we have to see it in an event like that for what it was, which is, um, sort of confirmation bias on the part of the Kasich administration. Like we know we took a political risk or at least framing it that way. And we're going to have something that says our decision, our push to do this was the right thing to do. And so you're not going to see them get up there and say, we made a mistake with $25 billion, right? Um, Especially if you have higher aspirations than the Ohio gubernatorial races. So that's part of it. And I think too, you know, there's a policy angle here, which is that, um, in order for the administration to achieve the economies of scale that they wanted around all these innovative things they're doing and value-based purchasing and uh, risk-based contracting and all these other sort of jargony sort of hot button issues, they needed Medicaid expansion because it, it brought more people into the fold. It helps sort of like uh, rejigger how the finances of Medicaid work from sort of a you know risk insurance sort of standpoint. Um, and so they were very embracing of it, if only because it helped them achieve other things around that sort of work. Um, and I think that they want to see those efforts continue because it can change the direction of the state. And I think that there's a lot of people who were close with the Kasich folks um, who were you know, in the administration who really want to see that um, carry forward. But one thing I'd like to highlight is, um, you know, on the larger level, this third rail question, I I personally feel as though that's what tax reform is in part really all about. And, and what I mean by that is if you, if you 
like hired me, like if um, Speaker Paul Ryan uh, gave me a, a buzz and said, hey, how do we how do we like um, undo the ACA? The thing I would say to him was don't start with the ACA. Um, start with, um, you know, uh, the revenue side of things. Create the crisis, right? Create the financial pressure and then point to entitlements and say entitlements are the problem. And so they didn't do that. Obviously, they started with the ACA. It didn't work. Um, and uh, instead, you know, tax reform came along later. But, you know, I, I have a feeling um, if there is a budget crunch sometime in the future and if Democrats continue to pick up seats or even a presidential spot, spot you know, that's something that they can point to. They can say Medicaid is bankrupting us and look at the expenditures and look at the outlays, look at our deficit growing, et cetera, et cetera. And then they can go after their big target, which is ending the entitlement of Medicaid and ending the ACA, which is, um, you know, you can make the argument that expansion was it's like one of the biggest components of it. So I don't think that that is off off the table yet. And I think that that's the way in which the third rail really manifests itself is over the next couple of years. How does the sort of federal budgeting impact the conversation around entitlements and what does the economy do in that time frame and who is in political power um, to affect those issues? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it totally does. And I'm thinking as you're saying that, you know, one of the things that made me chuckle throughout the Kasich administration was his attempt to thread this needle of saying uh, Medicaid expansion is a matter of life and death, as he told the Cincinnati Inquirer. But it's not the Affordable Care Act. It's different. I don't support the Affordable Care Act. And of course, the Medicaid piece was one of the most substantial parts of the Affordable Care Act. Um, I, I, I do think that there was quite a bit of principle on the governor's side in expanding Medicaid, but he also had to make the political arguments to to make the policy work. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that you see that all over the policy, not only in Ohio, but in other conservative states. Like, you know, there are the ACA is huge, right? It's a gigantic set of reforms. And I think most Americans actually have no idea how huge it is yeah. when you think about all of the other aspects that never even get talked about and frankly are under the radar screen of repeal. Yeah. I mean, most people don't even know how much their average medical visit costs. And so how could there be a p- expectation that they understand the policy and political framing of something so large? You, you can't. And that's o- oftentimes what the political um, manipulation of it is all about. It's about just sort of reframing something as not what they don't like. And so, you know, in the context of the case administration, they're very embracing of a number of ACA policy reforms, whether that was the state innovation model project or the SIM project around value-based reform, whether it was health homes, it's the ACA expansion, it was the um, sort of uh, retooling of their eligibility system. All this stuff was financed and enabled by uh, the ACA. I mean, electronic health record adoption, it, one of the, the the most profound infrastructural investments that has ever been made in healthcare was an ACA policy. And people don't usually associate those things. Um, but that's, you know, that's the issue is like, sometimes it's too big a sandwich to eat. Um, <laughs> and the one thing is, you know, at least for me, it means that I may be employable, but that's, you know, it, it takes time to understand these things. <laughs> the ACA, too big of a sandwich to eat. I, I, I like that. Um, you know, uh, I, I, it's a perfect segue in many ways to just a, another quick follow up on that, which is so, you know, if you had to pick an issue that Ohioans, you know, are, are not aware of or focusing on in their day to day, you know, while they're paying their bills, working their jobs, taking care of their families, things like that. 
what, what's one issue that you think is really important that people probably don't even know is so important or is happening now or is at stake? Yeah, I, um, you know, that's, it's tough. I think, um, when we're talking about, uh, the relationship, I, I just sort of frame it as infrastructure. Um, and what I mean by that is, is like our choices around housing, our choices around transportation, um, the ways in which the state has made investments in other, um, aspects of our daily lives affects our health and affects the cost of health. Um, you know, we can frame this as, you know, policy wonks around like social determinants and that sort of thing. But, you know, I, I think, um, uh, really what people need to start paying attention to is things like affordable housing, right? Um, affordable housing is not only, um, say a housing issue or a homelessness issue. It's also, it's tied to things like lead. It's tied to things like senior, uh, seniors being able to age in their homes, right? It's tied into overall economic well-being of, uh, cities and suburban places. Um, it's tied into a whole bunch of different parts of our sort of lives that affect the overall health outcomes and thus the cost of healthcare. And people don't usually associate those sorts of things. So I, yeah, I think that that's a big, it's a big issue that we need to start paying attention to. It's interesting. You probably remember, uh, you know, when president Trump took office, one of the sort of hopes that people had in terms of bipartisan work was the so-called infrastructure bill that kept getting talked about. It's become a little bit of a, bit of a joke on Twitter. You know, is this infrastructure week? Finally, are we here? And I actually think the administration's had one or two formal infrastructure weeks that kind of got overshadowed by one of any number of other issues, you know, Russia or something like that. From the healthcare perspective, there already is a crisis here. We have the infant mortality rates. We have any number of issues that Ohio is not really proud of in terms of how they rank up nationally. What what are the prospects of actually having a mobilization around the kind of infrastructure issues that you're pointing to? Yeah, it's, I you know I don't think um, I'll I'll say this. I don't think when I talk about infrastructure, it's exactly what the the president is talking about. Right. Right. No, I, I, and I was, I was using that just because it's a yeah. language that we've heard so much. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, uh, the midterms have passed and really we have about one year left of policymaking. And I don't know if this Congress is, is suddenly going to say, all right, let's get together and enable something that everybody agrees on before the president is up for reelection. Um, I don't know if that's going to happen. Uh, I would like to see on the, again, you know, um, we, we tend to focus in on Congress and the federal level because it's sort of the, the uh, more interesting or high level or uh, easily accessible thing. But state politics and state policymaking is, is so much more, in my opinion, impactful in, in what people see. And I think there's a lot of opportunity there uh, and a lot of interest from this General Assembly to address things like public transportation. Right. So increasing Ohio's investment. There's a lot of discussion around that and how it could work and how it could benefit certain constituencies like seniors our fastest growing demographic in the state of Ohio. Also things like affordable housing, right? Um, so you, we may not see it on the federal level, but I could definitely see a lot of conversation in this budget around those sorts of issues um, and ramping up those issues and platforming them as healthcare issues. Um, you know, hopefully, you know, some of that message will get to uh, members of the General Assembly as they're trying to figure out, well, what do we do to control costs and Medicaid? Oftentimes, it's things that are outside of the program. Getting students to focus on the state level 
is hard and get in general, not just medical students, but any student. Everybody looks at the big shiny light of the federal government. Uh, students, sci- you know, it's funny as a political scientist. Every year when there's a presidential election, we see a huge spike in enrollment. It's always been that way. The students are just attracted to that. It's where the shiny lights are. But the hard policy work often happens um, in the trenches of the states. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, um, you know, talking about the students, like so, there's a, a student I teach who's really interested in geriatric medicine. It's certainly a good state to to practice in that field. And they were asking me, so like, you know, where should I be looking to try to improve outcomes around, say, like uh, nutrition-based diseases like hypertension and diabetes? And I said, you need to look at the SNAP program uh, or food stamps, as people typically think about it, SNAP being Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. And they, you know, were confused at first. I think they understood kind of what it was, but didn't really understand the policies behind it or why it was a senior issue. And then, you know, sharing the data and the information around uh, just in Northeast Ohio, how many seniors access it, um, the challenges in trying to uh, uh, remain and become eligible, the ways in which uh, seniors budget their Social Security with uh, SNAP to be able to purchase food, and, and the ways in which, say, food pantries have sort of had to step up in recent years in order to meet those needs. Um, you know, because it's one thing as sort of a medical professional to have someone come in and you have your, you know, 15 minute conversation. And you say, well, you should, uh, you know, make sure you take your medication and that you eat the following things and you have a sodium, low sodium diet, et cetera, et cetera. It's another thing to understand that in the context of individual consumer choices, how what foods might affect the ways in which you're able to comply with the diet or even take certain types of medication, right? If you have an empty stomach, uh, are you even able to do that without feeling nauseous? And how does that cause stress, et cetera, et cetera? So, you know, to be able to embed some more of this complex thinking around policy as uh, something that can affect your patients, I, I think is a really critical thing uh, that we could be doing with students so that they not only become more active advocates in the context of policy, but also become better patient advocates so that they can contextualize some of what they are doing to try to make their patients healthier in ways that are more sound or at least more um, sort of consonant with reality. Yeah, and you're also kind of pointing to something that I try to uh, emphasize in, uh, with students, but also I try to remind myself because we can lose focus sometimes. You know, tax policy is health policy. Food policy is health policy. You know, environmental policy is certainly health policy. And we're seeing this more and more of the new climate change report that's out now. You know, it, and, and it can be a little bit overwhelming because the students kind of sometimes will throw their hands up and say, how can I possibly start to, to, to think about these things if there's so many? And I just kind of say, you know, you just got to jump into the pool um, and, yeah. and start swimming around. Basically. Yeah, jump, jump into the pool and start forming relationships with your social work department. <laughs> right, which, yeah, that's a whole that's a whole different question of siloing within academic departments and all of that. So, I, you know, in kind of wrapping up here, I just, I, I want to ask you, you know, there's so much negative stuff out there. Um, I always try to say to students, but also you have to keep yourself uh, in this frame of mind too. Remind, remind yourself that, you know, we're doing this because there's a lot of opportunity here. There, there's a lot of potential for improvement. Uh, what's something, you know, what's something good that's happening? What's something you're excited about? You can't wait to see how it's going to develop. I mean, you've kind of said there's not going to be a lot of legislative action, most likely. Um, and you talked about, I think you called it regulatory stuff, which I love. Um, what's something you're looking at that you're saying, wow, this could really be something that um, could make a difference in the coming year or so? Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, there's, 
there's a lot of movement in the conversation away from um, say whether or not Medicaid expansion should exist and into well, what should say Medicaid expansion look like or not so much in like we need to end programs or whatever, but how do we retool them? So, you know, I think that there's a lot of bipartisan awareness of say drug costs and um, I don't know to what extent, um, you know, there are specific policies that I could point to to say this is something that everything will happen and everyone will align behind and, and agree with. But there's attention being paid there um, in uh, elder care. Right. Um, uh, you know, improving the quality and access to um, you know home and community based services and uh, trying to deinstitutionalize. I think there's a lot of activity there. Um, I think, too, around opioids, I see consistent investments in access to treatment um, in um, uh, creating opportunities to connect the disparate systems of say the medicalized things and sort of the community-based interventions around treatment I think is also an opportunity really I, I you know there, there's so much good that is actually happening um, it's often easier to just get wrapped up in those bigger conversations around you know what switch do we flick on or off um, but you know, a lot of that, a lot of that's detail work. Um, I will say, I'm really excited about uh, Dewine's focus on kids and uh, the appointment. His first appointment being Joanne Cornyn, um, who's uh, gonna sort of take up the issue of how do we improve um, outcomes for children across the board. Um, that is something that I think is important and necessary um, for a whole host of reasons. Um, not uh, the least of which is, you know at least in the context of healthcare in the state of Ohio, you know, health for children, particularly in Medicaid is, is not where it should be. We're sort of pedestrian when it comes to a number of child health based outcomes. And so I think I'm really excited to see what the agenda is there, how it affects the ways in which we are enacting policy, because if there is one constituency that relies on health policy, it's kids, right? One in two children are born under the Medicaid program. I think three and four just in Cuyahoga County. So you got to get that right. And I'm, I'm really excited to see what their agenda is around that and, and how they sort of uh, bolster and strengthen the policy construction of, of children and children's health. Yeah. One, one of the things that uh, I always use to frame this issue, um, just to remind ourselves of what institutions can do, but what the other broader social determinants of health can do is, you know, we're, we have an amazing state here where we have some of the literally, I think, two of the top five children's hospitals, maybe three of the top 10, depending on who you're asking. Um, so we have these amazing children's hospitals, but we have one of the worst infant mortality uh, rates in the country. It's a real paradox to kind of remind us of what drives health and what to stay focused on. And hopefully that's going to be something that the governor is going to be keeping in mind as well. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I mean, you know, I heard like a phrase like, if uh, you want to have someone open up your skull and operate on your brain with lasers, you go to the US. Uh, if you want to make sure that you get all your immunizations, go anywhere else. <laughs> so, you know, I think I think that's one of the things we, we are excellent in interventions. We have some of the best technology, the best specialists, the, the deepest understanding of really complex things. It's often the simple things that get overlooked. And, uh, you know, hopefully there is a greater focus and a shift away. Um, and I think there's a lot of potential for that. So I'll just end on a, a more of a humorous note. I was looking at your Twitter feed and, you know, you say you can go elsewhere for vaccinations. I was thinking we can go to your backyard for a 10 pound brisket. It sounds like you've been working on. 
Yeah. So, yeah, um, so I, I, I just, I just thought to myself, well, I guess I'm not going to be going to Lauren for, um, you know, commentary on vegetarianism and health and things like that. No, uh, definitely not. At least not this past weekend, uh, with the brisket and the uh, mac and cheese. But, um, I will say I did schedule quite a long jog for today and I'm not looking forward to it given the amount of brisket that I had. But, uh, yeah, you know, sometimes, um, health can be more dynamic than all the inputs, uh, Sometimes you just need a little, a little break, but, um, yeah, you're welcome to stop by for barbecue anytime, Dan. Well, there you go, folks. Lauren Anthes demonstrating personal commitment to health in the wake of, uh, indulgence. Thanks very much, Lauren, for, for coming on Prognosis Ohio. And, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Sounds great. Thank you, Dan. Thanks to Lauren Anthes for being my guest on this week's podcast. Prognosis Ohio is hosted by Dan Skinner and produced by Riley McKee, with help from Kyle Rosenberger and Jory Gomes. You can subscribe to Prognosis Ohio on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. As always, we welcome your emails to prognosisohio at gmail.com and your tweets and follows at at prognosisohio. Your feedback would be much appreciated. If you have ideas for themes and guests, we'd also love to hear them. Thanks. See you next time.